Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Yes, indeed. Welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast, episode number 182. Rich Kimball, along with Carrie Haskell, brought to you this week and every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. On this week's edition of the program, we'll talk with a, well, now member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, officially inducted last weekend, Gina Shock, the longtime drummer of the Go-Go's, talked with us uh, about that and her new book, Made in Hollywood. Up first, though, a very talented writer. You know him for his work on Deadspin, The Defector, co-host with David Roth of the Distraction Podcast. He's the author of a couple of books. He's a former Chopped champion. But his new book is a, a, a true story based on his own experience from almost three years ago when he suffered a massive brain hemorrhage that uh, well, could have easily killed him. The road to recovery has been a challenging one and a long one and is in many ways a, still a work in progress. But Drew McGarry chronicles all of it in a terrific new book entitled The Night the Lights Went Out. Here's Drew McGarry on downtown the podcast how would you summarize the events that happened to you three years ago this december i was at a, a work party in a karaoke bar i sang you got lucky by tom petty uh, i walked out uh of the it was a private room i walked out to take a pee and then i blacked out and i woke up two weeks later uh, it turned out that i had suffered a, a brain hemorrhage in that hallway collapsed and fractured my skull in three places i had gone permanently half deaf in one ear uh, I lost my sense of smell. Um, I lost some of my sense of taste. Um, it took me three weeks to learn how to walk again and get out of the hospital after I was in the coma for two weeks. And then I spent a year basically trying to figure out how to be a person again. And that is the story of the book. And here I am talking. <laughs> well, the book is great, but I have to tell you, for a hypochondriac, boy, what a banquet of delights uh, it is for me because in reading it, every Every time I would get an ache or a pain over the couple of days of reading, I'm like, oh, oh this is it. Because my, my mom had a cerebral hemorrhage when she was 33. And it's interesting to me, we all, with life experience, we all understand cancer and, and heart attacks. We get that. But the brain is in so many ways still a complete mystery to us. Yeah, I was, you know, because I'm in my 40s. So I was like, I better watch my cholesterol. You know, you always think about your heart and all that stuff. And yet here, you know, I suffer from this injury that, is, you know, one of the leading killers in the United States. 1.5 million people get a traumatic brain injury every year. And, you know, it, it happens from from people getting strokes. That's, I think, the, one of the main culprits, but from car accidents, from assaults and things like that. But, you know, there are 1.5 million of us, and we don't all die right when it happens. Um, but um, you have to learn to live with it after the fact, and the people around you have to live with you after the fact. And that's its own story. And it's, it's, it plays out over and over and over again. If you don't, if you did not suffer a TBI yourself, you certainly know someone who has, as you just told me, Rich. So it's, it's, a, it's a nearly uh, universal American affliction um, that, frankly, doesn't get a lot of run because either, you know, other stuff is just, just happens to get better awareness and happens to have better branding, um, or, you know, or, or people don't care enough, and I'm going to try to get them to. Now, is it safe to say that uh, after you came out of your medically induced coma, you weren't exactly a model patient? No, no, I was mad. Like, if you ever watch, like, Grey's Anatomy 
and like someone takes like an arrow to the skull and they they're like a totally different person. Uh, like that's a very melodramatic example, but I had damaged my uh, frontal cortex, which regulates emotion. Um, so when I got up, you know, not only had I been in a medically induced coma and was still shaking off all the drugs to induce that coma, but I had brain damage that inhibited my ability to rein in my emotions at important times. So I was pissed. I was, I was a, my wife said, uh, you were a jackass. Uh, that was on the record. So that's in the book. <laughs> and you, uh, I, I did enjoy the fact that they saw it as a good sign when you responded to the nurses at one point by flipping them off. Yeah. They said, they said, please show me a finger. And I showed them both fingers and they were a special <laughs> kind of finger. So, it made my it made my family weep because they they knew that there was still, you know, still the same uh, you know naughty little boy was still in there. We're talking with Drew McGarry on downtown. His book is called "The Night the Lights Went Out." Uh, I was at a, a conference. I teach school full time, and we had a, a conference recently about uh, dealing with trauma. And the person uh, doing the presentation said, "We think of trauma wrong that it's not an event as much as it's our response to events." Does that make sense? Yeah, it is, because, you know, if you watch movies and TV, the trauma always plays out along. It always comes instantly after the event or even during the event. You know, you watch a horror movie, someone screams, stuff like that. That's really not how real life plays out. If you've ever been scared or you've been through an emergency situation, you have a fight-or-flight response where you usually go stone silent and you just sort of get through it, and then the trauma happens. It's, uh, you know, like I said in the book, it's, it's a vine. It grows on and around you, uh, around your mind, you know, over time. Um, and it's, it's, it's not, you know, you think of trauma as an incident, and it's not. It's a, um, it's a, it's a process. It grows, and, and it's in much in the same way recovery is a process. You know, the, the damage is not sudden necessarily, although in my case I had a lot of physical sudden damage. Um, but the, the psychological damage, uh, you know, only slowly begins to reveal itself the more you think about it and the more time you have to live after the event. Was it when you realized that you had hearing loss that you felt like you had joined the disabled community? Yeah, I, I thought so because there were things I simply could not do. I was half deaf, and if, you, if you're half deaf or you have lots of hearing problems, you experience what's known as a cocktail party effect where if you go into a loud room, you are not able to really discern between all the noises that you hear. If you're, if you're fully able with hearing, it, you know, a room can be loud, but you can still sort of make out the difference between, you know, one conversation going on over there and, and uh, you know, a waiter dropping a plate, you know, on the other corner of the room and the band singing the song. All that morphs into a blur if you have hearing loss, and, and it prevents you from being able to do things without corrective equipment, as I have. I have hearing aids, I have a cochlear implant. So, yeah, I, I, I knew that when I got the diagnosis, I knew that my life would never be the same. Um, and at the time, I assumed that my life would always be worse. And that actually did not turn out to be the case. And I'm glad it did. I love some of the science that's in the book, too, and I, I understood them. And my wife works with uh, uh, people in the deaf and hard of hearing community. And, and the, the way the cochlear implant works, to me, is fascinating. And yours turned out to work very well. First of all, you don't know if it's going to work, uh, but it did. But how it takes the sounds from the non-functioning ear and is able to sort of bounce those off the other, well, I can't explain it well, but can you tell us how it all works? 
Yeah, so there is, um, it looks like, uh, you know, not to be crass, but it looks like a boxy sperm. Like a, it's, a, <laughs> it's an electrode that, that they graft onto the outside of your skull. And it has a little tail, a little squiggly tail, with an area of electrodes um, lined on it. And they put that through a little hole in your skull and into the cochlea. The cochlea is on your inner ear. It's the, it's the organ that interprets, that takes sound, interprets it, and sends it to your brain to, as the sounds that you hear. And, you know, when you have a destroyed inner ear, as I did, the outside sound does not reach the cochlea. So this bypasses the ear entirely. My current ear is basically ornamental, and I have a little, like, key fob on, that's stuck to my head. It takes in sound and relays it to that electrode array that goes directly into the cochlea and then goes into my brain. So it's essentially a way of circumventing the human ear and replacing it. So I have a robot ear. And while that process was taking place, and this is a common side effect, you lost your sense of taste. I did because uh, when they operate on you, the nerve that uh, controls your hearing is also linked to taste. And it got a little dinged um, when they were working around my skull when I got cochlear implant surgery and I woke up and I couldn't taste anything. And that freaked me out because, you know, I'd lost so much already and, and food meant a lot to me as it does now. And I thought, well, if it never comes back, I, I really, you know, I, I don't know how much lower I can get psychologically. And, and it, it came back mostly, but you know, my palate is now I'd say working in about like 75 or 80% capacity and then we'll probably stay that way. I like how you pointed out in the book, too, that those those charts of the tongue and our taste buds that we all looked at when we were little kids, that that's not really how the tongue and the taste system works. That's right. That's garbage. So you got you got this map that said sweets in the front and uh, like sour is on the sides and bitters in the back or something or umami's in the center and all that stuff. All wrong. It, the tastes are all over your tongue. Um, but, you know, the front of your tongue detects those things very quickly. Uh, to determine whether or not something's poisonous or delicious, uh, and then proceeds accordingly. Um, but the 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 map was devised by a German scientist, you know, essentially to sort of make it easy for kids to understand how the palate works. But it was all garbage, and they should never teach it again. <laughs> Drew McGarry with us here on downtown. So you had this incredible experience. Uh, people have written and spoken about near death experiences uh, for you. It was it was not particularly profound because you were gone. I was gone. I was napping. It was it was quite pleasant because you know if you if you've ever gone to sleep, it's nice to be asleep and then wake up. And so I was I was in a coma for two weeks, and they they took me out periodically because it was a medically induced coma. I have no memory of that. They would take me out of it. I would go Frankenstein and rip tubes out of my head and stuff like that. But I have no memory of that. I only remember the waking up part. And the time in between that was two weeks, it may as well have been five minutes. I really I really do not remember it. I had no visions. I, I didn't see anything. You know, I didn't see St. Peter or anything like that, even though my heart rate had gone down to 44 beats a minute and my lungs had failed. I didn't have any of those sensations. All I had was basically a sweet trip to the black, and it was fine. So it was, but it was, but it was not, uh, it was not as, uh, romanticized as, you know, my average heavy metal daydream of what a coma would be. <laughs> but, but it has certainly changed your outlook. And, and a couple of things you said that really, uh, really hit me. One, you say that those who love you are your afterlife. Yes, that, that, that's correct. I, you know, I, I'm not a terribly religious person, 
I, you know, I didn't really know that there would be heaven or hell or anything like that, but it, it became very evident to me that, you know, the way that you live on is, is through the relationships you, you forge here on the ground and the people who carry the, that part of you in their spirit and becomes part of their spirit. And it goes on and on through generations and it stays here through the world. And that's how you stay with the world. And when you went back through and uh, and looked at some of the pictures and then read those those narratives about what people saw, what they did, when you, you read your wife's Caring Bridge entries and you, you realized, among other things, that there were a whole lot of people who loved you, and that's that's something to try and live up to. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice to be loved, and it's nice to have people care that much. I wish that they had not had to go through that, but... Um, that is generally what I, I think about. I, I think about what happened to I think about it as something that happened to them more than it happened to me because I was asleep. I don't remember. And, I, you know, I had to deal with a lot of stuff after that, obviously, and I still, I still deal with it to this day. Um, but I was not awake for the scary parts, and they were. And I, I try to always remember that, and I try to always remember what they endured for my sake and why they did it, and I, I try to always be grateful for that, and, and I am. It, it, it makes me happy. And it's, a, it's a bittersweet happiness because, obviously, like I said, I, I wish that they hadn't gone through it, and I don't wish adversity on anybody, but we'll go through it, and, and it's always nice to know that, that love is in our corner when we do. You thought you were doing pretty well in your recovery, but uh, there were some issues, uh, anger and frustration, and so eventually you made the decision to go to therapy, and uh, and you wrote of that, not all your thoughts were valuable, nor were they useful. No. Yeah, because I'm a writer, so I'm used to everything I write, not only being important, but I get to broadcast it to the world, right? And, you know, I've been living that way for a very, very long time. And, you know, after I got hurt, it made me realize that there was a, a great value in keeping my thoughts to myself and letting other people have the floor, which I did not do anywhere near enough in my previous life. And, and I endeavor to do more of now, but I still have a lot of work to do in that regard. My wife will tell you that happily. <laughs> now, you didn't make a bucket list, and, and I like this approach. You say that life is, uh, life is meant to be incomplete. You're not supposed to get to everything on that list. No, because you can't, right? You're not, you're not going to be able to do everything. You're not going to be able to meet everybody. You're not going to be able to visit every country, unless you're like Tony Bourdain or something like that. You're just not going to be able to do that, but that's sort of the beauty of it, right? There are no limits to what you can do. That, you know, if you, you know, I, it would be weird if you, like, did everything and you're like, well, I guess that's it for life. I guess I won. <laughs> I guess that's how it works, right? So the idea is that there's always something new for you to experience and enjoy. And even once you've experienced all of those things, there's so much more if you don't get to it, people you love, or even people you don't know, they're going to get to enjoy those things, and that's really cool. Like a lot of us, uh, you, uh, well, you kicked your coverage when it comes to Sonia. My God, what a hero she comes through as in this story. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, you don't want to be the sort of wife guy who's like, oh, my wife's Satan, all that stuff, and, and I'm just a bastard and all that. But she, what she went through, uh, you know, there was a lot of bravery that, you know, I, I remain... Um, you know, deeply admiring of, of what my wife went through and how she was able to keep the family together through all, all of this. And I hope, I hope that if anything happens to her, and God forbid it doesn't, that I will have word from her strength um, to keep 
us together in, in, in the same way. That's, that's all I can do because she was a, a fantastic role model. And, uh, you know, I will always be forever grateful and appreciative and I'll always love her. Do you miss anything about the old Drew? Uh, no, I don't. No, no, I don't. I don't miss anything about it. Like, I, I want to tell you I miss drinking because I, I used to drink, but I don't drink anymore since I got hurt. But I don't even miss that. Like, I, I think I think maybe if I miss anything, it's, it's going out more. But I can't really blame that on the on the injury. I, I can blame that on the little pandemic that's still going on around us. <laughs> that, that's more, that's, that's that tends to be the bigger culprit right now. Uh, tell me Carter is still going strong, please. Carter, my dog, is doing well. His eyesight's not fantastic. And sometimes he gets a little growly, but now he's fine. Glad to hear that because I loved reading about him. Um, also, a big success story happened in your career um, after the demise of Deadspin uh, when you and David Roth and others went off and, and started your own thing. And who knew how that was going to go? But, wow, Defector has just been a huge success. It has. We got very, very, we were very, very fortunate. We launched during the pandemic in, in September of 2020 um, as a subscription site because it was the only way we were going to be able to do it to make the product good and not have four billion ads on the site and all that stuff. And, you know, we were, you know, it was, you know, times were tight for everybody. And so we were sort of hoping that the people that read us and enjoyed us when we were at Deadspin would, would follow us to this new site. And be willing to pay, you know, uh, you know, it's not, it's not a huge amount, but you, you know, it's still money and it's still something that people think about. And, you know, I think a lot of people my age are still used to the idea of the internet being free and, and not really a, necessarily willing to adapt in the same way that, you know, back when Napster was around that, you know, people were used to music being free and not paying for streaming. Um, but what happened was we launched and, and we got 10,000 people to sign, subscribe, right when we launched and it's grown to 40,000 and we've all been able to be employed and, and have health insurance for ourselves and pay ourselves our salaries and, and even hire people. So it's been a really, really wonderful thing to have happen. And, and the nice thing is that it's a business like, you know, it's not just people signing up because, you know, they think of us as like a Kickstarter or something like that. It's because we're giving them stuff they want to read and, and they enjoy reading it without a lot of interference from advertising. There's not a lot of garbage comments because we, you know, you, there's a level you got to pay above to get comments. So, you know, all of it has worked out really, really well. And, and we're just going to keep at it and, and keep giving people what they want. Well, you mentioned insurance, and that's one of the messages in the book, too, is how lucky you were uh, to have insurance cover a lot of you went through. And I, I look at what we've all gone through in the pandemic, and, and I would hope it won't happen, of course, but I would hope politicians or anybody in charge would come through the last year and a half and say, health insurance should never be tied to anybody's job. Everybody should have it. Yeah, you would think that they would realize that, but, you know, Kirsten Cinema's going to do what she's going to do. Yeah. <laughs> have you come around on mayonnaise at all? No, no, I still don't. I still don't care for it. Sorry. You're not missing much, I don't think. Uh, the book is great. Uh, the Night the Lights Went Out, it is, uh, it's... Funny as hell, but also an uplifting and poignant read. Drew McGarry, been a fan of your work for such a long time. Glad to hear you're doing well and really appreciate you making some time for us today. Thank you for having me on, and I do apologize for being a little late. I will, I will, that will not happen again. All right. We're, we're okay. You get a free pass on the first one. That, that's very, very fine. <laughs> Thank you so much. Have a great day. Drew McGarry talking about his terrific new book, The Night the Lights Went Out, here on Downtown. We'll pause for a word from Cross Insurance, and when we come back, Gina Shock 
of the Go-Go's. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Uh, who's that on the drums? Well, it's a friend of downtown, the talented Gina Shock. Go-Go's inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame last weekend. And we had a chance to talk about all that and more. I say we, it was Carrie who had a chance to talk with Gina Shock about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction and her brand new book, Made in Hollywood, all access with the Go-Go's. Gina, congratulations on both the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction this weekend and the release of your new book. Uh, Thanks for taking the time to come back to downtown and talk about those huge events with us. Well, it's a double whammy for me. I'm just, (laughs) I'm very excited and in in a grateful mood right now, I've got to tell you. Well, the book is wonderful. Uh, not only tons of beautiful images, uh, but some great stories about the band's journey. How important was it for you to balance those two elements in a in a book? Well, you know what? Initially, I I wasn't the least bit interested in writing anything. I just wanted to. I had so many photographs, um, you know, that I collected over our over forty year career uh, career, and I just. I was like, oh, my God, I've been wanting for decades to, to get them, put them in a book, get them, show them to our fans, you know, because um, they're collecting dust in my house under the bed and the closets and drawers everywhere. Um, so I was so happy to get them all together and, and, and be able to show them to, to everyone, you know. It, it, and then as, as, I, as I was putting that together, I was thinking, I, I was approached about writing something when I was like, ah, I don't know if, I, if I'm a, a writer. I don't know if I can do that. But. As I as it started coming together further and further along, it, it started to get easy to start to write stories because looking at those photographs, you remember everything. Mm. So you know, uh, when you look at a photograph or you hear a song, it all comes back. Absolutely. Uh, what was sort of the trigger that made this the time to to create the book? I had to, I found the right person to help me organize it. Um, I mean, I've been waiting for. I'm telling you literally for like a couple decades to find somebody that was interested in doing it, that knew how to do it, you know, could help me organize all this. And I finally found this fellow to help me do it and uh, wrote a book proposal, got the deal and started off on my journey a year and a half ago. Now, most of the images, a lot of them in the book are ones that you shot. Was photography something that just came naturally to you? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I just, yeah, I love photography. I have a lot. I buy a lot of uh, photographs. Mm. Uh, you know, I go to galleries and buy a lot of stuff. And um, so it's, I've always been a very visual person, and it really appeals to me. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it only made sense that I, I would continue, you know, taking photos. Because I, I started taking them with my little Instamatic camera, driving across the country in 78. And when I would go to rock concerts in Baltimore... I had my Instamatic taking pictures of all the bands that I would go see. <laughs> now, along with the photos, there's a there's a good amount of memorabilia featured in the book. Is that something too that you've always sort of been a collector of 
of stuff? I, you know what? I'm the biggest fan in the world. I collect it all. I love it all because it, it means something to me. Every bit of all those buttons, those posters, everything, it all means something to me. Um, you know, I look at it and I can remember, I can remember everything that was going on. And, you know, I've had such a wonderful career um, and it's still going, which is the unbelievable part of it. Um, over 40 years later, the little punk band in L.A. And here we are. We've had a we've had a, a, a show on Broadway. We've had this wonderful documentary come out and Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I've got a book coming out. I mean, my book is out. I mean, it's all been been just great. We're talking with Gina Shock, soon to be Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee uh, here on Downtown, about her new book, Made in Hollywood, All Access with the Go-Go's. It was released earlier this week, as you just mentioned, and uh, geez, doing incredibly well. Now, I mentioned I was going to be talking with you today on uh, on my social medias last night, and uh, multiple friends weighed in with questions for you. One of those questions was, uh, were, was there a role model or role models that sort of got you into playing the drums? Was Charlie Watts and and uh, John Bonham? That those were the two I idolized. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, fortunately, I did. I mean, um, I I did get to meet um, Tr- Charlie Watts when we when we opened for the Stones, um, which of course uh, was a thrill of a lifetime, and I'll never forget. Um, and uh, I mean, I I loved his playing. He was solid. He, he was like a rock. He, he was the glue that kept that band together. He, he was powering that band every step of the way. His parts were simple and extremely effective. He played only what was necessary to elevate those songs. Um, incredible. Yeah, he was an idol. And John Bonham, same thing. He played exactly what was needed uh, for Zeppelin. You know, uh, his power fills and his foot so fast. You know, the incredible triplets. Boom. He, he, they were both incredible. Both of them completely different. And I love them both for, you know, for their styles. They're completely different styles. Now, sort of flipping that question a little bit, do you hear from people that talk about your drumming with the Go-Go's being their reason for taking up the drums? Yeah, it's, it, it's happening. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very, you know, it's a very, very, it's very humbling. You know, mm. it's like, wow. I think like, I think ultimately the biggest gift that you can give no matter what it is you do, is if you can inspire someone else to do what you do, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, and fortunately, that, that is happening, and people do write me, and I see it all the time, and it's like, wow, people are paying attention to what I'm doing. I'm just this kid from Baltimore, but I guess I've left my mark. That's, that's pretty nice. It's a good feeling. Yeah, I uh, definitely have. you have left a mark. Now, another question that popped up from that discussion last night uh, what was the experience like for you and for the band and making those videos that just sort of blew up in the early 80s? Oh, making the videos? Yeah. Oh, my God. What a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about 12, 14-hour days. Oh, my God. I mean, but the end result was well worth it. But, Jesus, that, they, were, they really were tough. You, you, you'd get in the studio 8 in the morning, start with makeup, and you wouldn't get out of there until after 12 at night. It, um, but like I said, the end result was well worth it. We have some really funny videos. We try to add inject humor into all of our videos. Now, uh, before the Go-Go's broke nationally, the band was just very successful in the L.A. music scene. What were those years like The the before you sort of hit nationally for you and the rest yeah, of the band? It, well, it was, a, it was a really happening, a very vibrant punk 
scene in L.A. at the time. Mm. Um, so, you know, and we all had each other's back. We, we all, it was a group of people that all hung around. We went to see each other's bands. You know, there were so many clubs you could go to. You could go to a couple of shows a night. As a matter of fact, what's really funny is, you know, talking about the pub scene, I was just went down to get a cup of coffee, and I ran into Pat Smear, who's in the Foo Fighters, who was in the Germ, okay? The, uh, one of the premier punk bands from L.A. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's so funny, just running into Pat. <laughs> um, but um, anyway, yeah, it, it, was a, it, was an, it was an incredible scene there. And, um, uh, you know, I'm so lucky that I arrived when I did, because it was happening. Well, the book is Made in Hollywood, All Access with the Go-Go's, and you can keep up with everything that Gina's got going on at her website, ginashock.com. Gina, hope you have a great time at the Hall of Fame ceremony this weekend and wishing you just great success with the book. Thanks once again for chatting with us today. Thank you. I'm pretty nervous, but I think it'll go okay, right? Oh, I, I don't have a doubt. Oh, my God. Thank you, sweetheart. I appreciate it. Man, she's great, Carrie. I'm, I'm jealous. You've had a chance to talk with her a couple of times now, and I, I've been I've been absent without leave both times. I hope she's not taking it personally. I, I don't think she is, but uh, I've enjoyed both conversations immensely and look forward to having another one as soon as she's able. Yeah, she's great. Uh, Gina Shock, the book is called Made in Hollywood, All Access with the Go-Go's. Our thanks to Gina. Thanks to Drew McGarry, author of The Night the Lights Went Out. And thanks to you for joining us. We'll see you next time right here on Downtown, the podcast.